This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. The first pitch on its way. Swing and a line drive left side of the infield. Fielded by Wendell. He made the catch! Rays win! Rays win! Rays win! And they're on their way to the American League Championship Series as they knock off the New York Yankees 2-1. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. Just a swing and a drive, hit well in the air towards right. Mookie Betts going back to the wall. Gone! A first-inning homer for Randy Arozarena, number 10 of the postseason. It's one nothing Rays. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Good morning. Welcome to our show. Today we visit with David Robertson about joining the Rays. We'll discuss Eric Neander's extension with him and remember Paul Kirsch with the Rays' R.J. Harrison. We'll chat with prospect Bo Brundage and get an update from Tyler Zombro on his terrific recovery. Plus, we'll be joined by Marley Rivera of ESPN. We continue on this week in Rays baseball, and joining us right now, the pitcher on the Rays roster who's got the most playoff appearances of anybody on the club, and he also is one of the newest Rays, too, and I'm talking about David Robertson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Tell me what it meant to come to this club, and why you ended up picking the Tampa Bay Rays, because you obviously had choices and options. I did. Um, For years, I've battled against the Rays and just been frustrated by Tropicana Ballpark and and this team. I can't remember ever winning a series down here against the Rays, and I think it was just uh, a great fit for me and a great opportunity now to come here and be a part of this organization. Um, they've got a lot of good things going for them, and they sold it to me, and I was I was in. I'm excited to be a part of it. Who was the best of the sellers in all that? Because you played with Kevin Cash briefly with the Yankees. I played with Cash, and then um, I talked with Kevin Ibach about it and, and Eric Gander and you know, I'm hanging out with who's now a Minnesota twin, Joe Ryan, and Shane Boss, who's in, in Durham. And then Casimir was my roommate over in, in the at the Olympic Village. And just, you know, you start to hear about how things are, are run here. And, and when I got back, it just seemed like the best fit. So it's very early, but what are your impressions? Have they met what you were hoping when you walked into the clubhouse for the first time? It's, it's been great so far. I love, I mean, if we, this, this team's got a... He's got it going on. You um, you didn't have to come back. I mean, you've had a successful 12-year career. Where does that passion come from, and why uh, continue as you have? Why was it important for you to return to, to this game at the big league level? I, I just don't feel like I'm done. I, I think that's the best way of saying it. I, I'm, you know, I, I injured myself two years ago and uh, ended up having to have surgery, and it took a long time for me to really get back. Even though I've had some, some appearances with, the, with Team USA, it's still – I was still working through some things to get to the point I'm at now. I mean, baseball is what I do. It's my job. It's my passion. It's what I love. And where else can you hang around and play a game for a living? You won a World Series, too, very early in your career. Is that part of what drives you, or is it something else? Yeah, the postseason's fun. The, post, the postseason is 
It's the best part of baseball. You wait all year to get there, and, and there's, just, there's just nothing better than winning and high-fiving and popping champagne bottles with, the, with your buddies. And obviously hoping for that here as the race went to the World Series last year. Where did your love of the game start? Because, again, there are a lot of guys who play five, ten years, and they say, okay, I'm good. And obviously you can see by some of the smile on your face how much you love <laughs> this game. Where, where did it start for you? When did you develop that passion? I probably developed it watching my older brother, Connor, play. He you know, he was really good. Uh, he's four years ahead of me, and he ended up getting drafted and had some time with Oakland and Arizona. But I, I just I, – it was something I was all – I never really had to think much about. I kind of understood how the game was supposed to be played. And, you know, I was a position player coming up through Little League all the way up, pitching too as well, but I was never never really thought of myself as a pitcher. Turns out I was a pitcher and got converted when, when the time was right. But I just – it's just a fun sport. There's a lot of action that happens, and you can make a big impact at any point in the game. You grew up, though, in – Tuscaloosa and Alabama in football country, and I know you're a big Bama fan. Yeah. Was there ever a thought of playing football over baseball, or or? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you see how big I am. It's not going to happen. I I can't throw a football more than twenty yards. Uh, I can kick one. That's about it. I placed kicked in high school, but I football. I'm, I'm, my body's just not built for football. I don't. I can't take those licks, and I'm not fast enough. Um, it's fun to watch. I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> I can be honest. I suck at it. <laughs> Uh, you love the honesty. Do you still go back to in your off season to any football games at, at Bama? I know you don't live in in that I, neck of the woods anymore. I've been back. It's been probably three or four years since I've been back to a game, but I'm hoping to get get back and go to one this year. Um, you know, especially with everything that happened with COVID last year, and, and even sometimes what's going on now. I think um, definitely later on in life I'll be going to a lot more album football games. But I, I get back to Tuscaloosa all the time. My family, all, my entire family still lives in the Tuscaloosa area. And uh, I have a farm just south of there so that I go down and hang out at. Where did playing in the Olympics rank up in terms of your accomplishments since you just got to do that, as you mentioned? I wouldn't quite put it on the same plane as like as ALCS and DS and wildcard game. What wildcard game is... It's kind of tough because it was a it was a completely different atmosphere. We're playing in an empty stadium with the weight of your country on your back, and you're trying to beat teams that you have no idea what you're doing against them. And I was not quite exactly who I had felt like I was when I got there. I was not throwing the ball where I wanted to, and I didn't want to make any mistakes. And it was such a tight, like, crunch on, on games. You, you, every game was a game seven. So it was different from the playoffs in, in MLB, but it was definitely – extremely exciting and intense baseball on a whole nother level do you wish that it didn't have to happen in the middle of a an actual baseball season so that you could enjoy it where it weren't you know i like the world baseball classic i i think it would be great but i don't know if that'll happen i think uh baseball comes out in in the next olympics and then we'll come back in when it's in la it's just part of it i mean sports are changing different things are going on different venues are being built for the olympics so if it gets back in there anytime soon, if they put it back in and I'm still around, I'm definitely going to try to get in. You mentioned that there, you spent some time with some current Rays, some former Rays. What was it like hanging out with Kaz? That was great. I, I didn't know. I've been you know across the lines from him every time. And then to be living in very tight quarters with him and, and some other and, – and, and Boz and Joe and Tim Federovitz and Todd Frazier, we, we get to know each other very, very quickly. But he was, he was great, you know, he – and nothing but good things to say about the race. And you didn't mention Edward Jackson, but this Edwin, one yeah, he's Edwin one of the best guys, your you know, best yeah. guys in the game. Yeah, Edwin was there too and he was telling me he was with the Rays, which I hadn't I mean, I should have known he's been with fifteen teams, so fifty percent chance you get it right. But yeah, I had I had a great time with everyone over there. I mean, even the, the new guys that I met for the first time were, were were great to hang around with. And Shane, 
What was it like? I mean, you know, you, I think you had said you roomed with him, yeah. and and there's a gap in age, but he's an old soul. I kind of consider yeah. him. He sounds like you know, you talk to him, he he seems a lot older than he actually is in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely think that um, he seems older than, than a 22 year old. His stuff is electric. He's he's got it. I imagine you'll be seeing him up here very soon. Not this year, next year, if I had to guess, because uh, he's got a great arm. He certainly does. When you had your first appearance with the Rays, were there any butterflies? Because it had been so long since you'd pitched a big league game, and did it feel any different than any, or was it like riding a bike? It was. I was definitely a little nervous. Um, obviously, it was a two-two ball game, so I'm, I'm not one to make a mistake. I didn't want to give in and, and get beat on a bad pitch. That was my thought process: was don't make a mistake, keep the tie, get the boys in the dugout, and give them a chance to score. But uh, it, it definitely. I pitched a lot of games here in Tampa, so it seemed it seemed pretty normal. I mean, I guess a two-year layoff, it didn't seem like that long. It looked normal for sure. You mentioned you had played with Kevin Cash uh, briefly with the briefly. Yankees. Yep. Did you ever see him as a when you were playing as, oh, this guy could be a manager? Or do you see every catcher can eventually? Yeah, yeah. I, I think of every catcher as, well, that's who they're going to pick to be a manager because they sit back there and watch the whole game the whole time when they're squatting and, and understand everything that's going on. So I, I, always, I always think that the catchers are going to be the next managers. Who that you played with beyond Kevin is now managing in the game? And is there anyone that you're surprised maybe isn't managing already because of, because they were such a good baseball guy? I don't think anybody else is managing in the big leagues. I mean, a couple guys own teams now, but, I mean, that's, that's very similar, right? And one is going into the Hall of Fame, uh, yeah, in fact, too. Yeah, well-deserved yeah. Hall of Fame vote. He's, he's, he's something special. He was, it was, I was very honored to be able to play with him. How, yeah, of the guys that you played with, who did you enjoy being with the most? Was it Mariano? Was it Jeter? I mean, I'm sure it's hard to pick when you've been around guys who've accomplished so much in the game. It, yeah, everyone there was super friendly. Everyone was, was inviting and welcoming and made it very easy for me to blend in and become part of that squad. They're just, they just had the same thought process. I mean, obviously things have changed, but when I was with that select group, that core with Posada and, and Pettit and Mariano and Derek, they were just all about winning. Which is the way it is here now, too. Yeah. You throw a curveball and a, and a cutter. Did Mariano have any influence on that or, or playing catch or anything like that at any point? He did. You know, um, we, we would talk about it all the time, and he would explain his thought process, and we kind of talk about certain guys that he would throw things to and how he would hold it and his thought process on throwing the baseball in that time. That being said, you know, I, I threw a curveball, a slide, and a changeup, too. So I had a lot of other weapons. So I wasn't just relying on one pitch like him, and I never had that, that full confidence to throw it every single time like him. But, yeah, he was definitely helpful in, in getting me to where I'm at now. How, was he your catch partner through part just, of it? Just my last year. Just his, his last year we played catch then. So we learned a lot. I mean, it's kind of felt like a, a lot of times, I, you know, you get used to seeing the same ball, and you're like, gosh, I mean, it's every time. It was the same motion, same same throw, same everything. I'm like, you would think guys would be able to time it up, but then you watch them get in the box, and he just he would paint with it. Again, we're chatting with David Robertson on This Week in Race Baseball. You've done a lot of good on the field, but also off it, too. Touch on your foundation that you and, and your wife created and why it was created and, and what led to it. Yeah, it's um, so we have me and my wife created High Socks for Hope. It's a not we're a 501c C3 nonprofit. We are we have one employee and uh, a lot of volunteers. Um, we started it in 2011 when Tuscaloosa was hit. Well, not just Tuscaloosa. Geez, a lot of Alabama was hit. There was a like 200 something tornadoes went off 
through the state. But my hometown, Tuscaloosa, was hit by an F4 or F5. It was a monster. It came through, and it killed 39 people in town. And uh, we had a lot of damage. Almost 15% of the town was taken out. So I was had an off day. I was able to fly down, got to see how bad the damage was. We shot a little promo video, and immediately I knew I had to do something. So we started raising money, and we started to figure out where we could put it put it to best use. And we started working with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, we worked with Nick's Kids. We have partnered with multiple other organizations and have been able to even build houses for certain families when we've raised enough money. We have just been on this push to try to help those who are affected by natural disasters. And it seems like there's no matter what happens, there's always flooding or a tornado or a hurricane or something that's happening at some part in the U.S. And we're trying to get there and bring as much help as we possibly can. We've also partnered with the VA and have, uh, when they start bringing in um some of the veterans who are in need of homes, when they get them in there, we come in and furnish their houses for them. Is there a connection to veterans, too, in your family as well? Uh, my, my grandfather was in the Navy, um, but uh, no, I just feel like those people put a, put a lot on the line. You know, they put their lives on the line for this country, and if I can help out just a little bit by getting some furniture in there for, for them when they get moved into a comfortable comfortable house or spot to live, uh, why not? With only, you know, one employee and, and you and your wife working on this, I'm guessing that it personally touches you a great deal to see stories of some of these families and you're able to help it, it does i mean you get countless stories of just horrific things that are happening to these families and, and these people and, and it just uh you know it makes you feel good about being able to help them because a lot of times there's not some there's not someone there to help them and whenever we are whenever we're available and can help we do you obviously have done some great things as we mentioned off the field on the field what's your most favorite moment you've had so many moments in your big league career either individually or with a team I would probably say, just me personally, I had probably the most fun playing in the uh, 2017 wild card game, playing the Minnesota Twins. Uh, it, was a long, it seems like, a, like it was just yesterday, but it was a long time ago. It was just one of those times where I was able to get a lot done in between the lines for a long period. I'd never thrown that early in a game and never thrown that long in a game before, and I felt like it was, it was just one of those times where I was able to go out there and do exactly what I needed to do to give us a win. Let's hope there's plenty of times with this club that you're able to do the same. We certainly appreciate some uh, some time on this week in race baseball, and great to see you wearing the race uniform. Yeah, thanks. It looks good. I like it. That's David Robertson. We'll continue right after this. You're listening to the Race Baseball Network. We continue on this week in race baseball, and with us, the now president of baseball operations for the race, Eric Neander. Eric, first of all, congratulations. Can you put in perspective the the change and the extension? I suppose the extension is the most notable part and just assures that a lot more likely to continue working here and with the wonderful, the many wonderful people that that make this a special place to be. Um, I think functionally, the the title component of it um, is probably more representative of a sign of the times and, and how titling has has evolved in terms of the, the day-to-day duties and oversight of the department. Don't see a whole lot changing in that respect, but in a in a good way. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. And uh, more than anything, just communicates to our, our staff that for better or for worse, I'm going to be here for a while and hopefully that's for the better for at least most of them, if not all of them. <laughs> Why announce it now? Why do it in September? I know you're probably the least attention-getting person out there. Yeah, it certainly benefits to it not being a thing or a story. And I uh, would much prefer to keep focus on the field and on our players as much as possible because ultimately that's what this is all about. We have an opportunity to work in this game because of them. Yeah, as far as timing, I 
there's there's been a lot that our staff has gone through in the last 12 months with with COVID and all the various fallouts that have accompanied you know this this pandemic and we're entering the time of year where we're working through contracts and commitments with our staff and people that are here and felt it was wise to at least let them know that I'll be here for a while and the organization wants me to be here for a while and as a sign of the, the quality work that, that's been done by this group and, and just as they're going through their own considerations and planning for themselves that they just have that awareness um, and it's one thing to, to say it individually I think and in private conversations it's another to, to make that statement more widely more assertively and uh, that certainly played a part in it and beyond that probably better questions for Matt, Brian and Stu but um, I'd summarize it that way and look forward to moving out as soon as possible. Why is this place so good for you? Because you know, your Andrew preceded you for the most part, and he decided at some point he wanted to have an opportunity to see what it's like with a larger revenue team. Why is this place so good for you that you want to continue in this role? Well, leaving college, you know, I was fortunate enough to have some time and opportunities to, you know, to, to pursue my passion you know I had, I had a love for this game that and a, and a passion for this game that I, I spent most of college not being able to recreate in any other any other field or focus and you know, I often think about the reasons I initially wanted to work in baseball you know love love the subject matter the, this particular line of work the intellectual stimulation that comes with it the camaraderie that comes with it are things that I really value you know the people you experience this journey with is something that's really important to me and that's something that we have here. We have amazing people here. I love the people I work with. I've learned so much from them. I hope I've been able to reciprocate a little bit of that to, to the many staff that work here as well. But you know, the, the day in, day out experiences that we have together are really special to me. And our success is a small part because of me and a very large part because of, of all of them. And I just I cherish that. I value it and you know, the opportunity to extend that for the foreseeable future um, and to try to maintain that means a lot to me and made this uh, a very easy decision beyond beyond the professional aspects of it the people i work with i'm just incredibly grateful you know from Stu sternberg to, to matt silver and brian all just the way i've been treated my family's been treated and they've been wonderful mentors to me professionally and they've been incredibly supportive of me and my family personally and, and that means a lot and their, their commitment and support to me is something that really does matter and have a sense of loyalty to that and want to try to repay them by winning a World Series, ideally, <laughs> and, 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 and operating and going about our business you know, in a way that we can all be proud of. Is that what you think in your mind is left? And if not, what is the other area or areas where you think you, you want to achieve still? Well, I'm a very competitive person. We all are, you know, we are, we are driven by the common goal of winning a World Series, but that's the ultimate on-field accomplishment. But if that's all that you hold out for and that's all that satisfies you, you're going to be left empty-handed quite often, and I, I think you won't be fulfilled. Um, I think it is, you know, that is, that is something that obviously is right there in front of us, and we have a, a chance to do that this year. We are optimistic we'll have chances to do that, um, you know, looking several years out here, but... That certainly is a signature accomplishment that, that we all are, are chasing, and many of us haven't had the opportunity to, to experience that. So that motivation's there. I don't ever see that going away, but sure, I'd like to find a way to win one. 
to start. But beyond that, it's just being in a place where I feel that I can grow, I can I can get better, I can make a difference, and I'm surrounded by an endless uh, list of, of people here that fulfill that to to the max. And so I don't necessarily know what that entails in specifics, but as long as that's in place and it's maximized, then I know I'm where I want to be and, and need to be with respect to my career, uh, the professional considerations that are in play. So since you touched on fulfillment, what are you most satisfied with that you have helped this group achieve since coming on board? Good question. I, I think I was asked this yesterday. I'm just going to respond with whatever comes first to mind, and I can give you about 30 different answers if you ask me 30 different times. But you know, I, I think something that I'm really proud of, and I hope others here feel the same way, is we have a lot of people with different experiences, perspectives, tenures in this game, and helping to foster an environment where they can make one another better. And there's there's a trust and there's a respect for the value that each individual brings to this organization and how they can help one another despite their differences, despite you know, those differences, um, create an environment where those differences are leveraged as strengths and for the greater good and to make our organization better. Um, that's that's big because that's not an easy thing to achieve. Um, it's not an easy thing to establish trust between people that see the world differently and have had different life experiences. And if I were to attribute our success to any particular thing, I think I would put that at the top of the list. The ability to have an environment where people recognize the value and the benefits of their differences. And like I said, an industry like professional sports that is cutthroat, where there's endless turnover, where people have numerous professional scars to to kind of see things to a place where that's been established is, is pretty special. And I don't know. I don't know how much that's on me and how much it's on others. And probably the, the right answer is it's a little bit on all of us. But that is something that we constantly talk about and make sure it's not taken for granted. That's race president of baseball operations, Eric Neander. Before we continue, let's pause for station identification on the race baseball network. WTAE St. Petersburg, W237CW Pendellis Park, WBTP HD3 Clearwater, W224BE Brandon, and iHeart Radio Station. Well, we continue on this week in race baseball, and joining us now on the minor league side is Bo Brundage, who is uh, having a terrific stretch right now with uh, Charleston um, for the Rays. And Bo, we appreciate a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Tell me what uh, your journey has been like and what it's meant to have the really great month and a half that you've had lately. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been it's been great. Find a little bit of success here. You know, I've just been working hard all season long, just uh, trying to fine tune some things and and uh, both on the physical side and on the mental side. What's clicked? Uh, well, I think it's a lot of different things. Um, I think it's finally having, you know, uh, getting a little bit of confidence at the plate finally getting some mechanical stuff figured out uh, and just in terms of, you know, a, a balance and everything like that. And, uh, you know, I can't thank the, the coaches, uh, you know, here in Charleston and, and everywhere else enough for, you know, working with me and you know it's been good. You were drafted in 18. I think part of 19, obviously you were a little bit banged up and then in 20, obviously COVID hit. Were there things that you worked on in 20 that you think have also helped during the pandemic that have allowed you to take a major step forward? Uh, yeah, you know, I think just first and foremost, just growing physically, you know, as you get older and, 
you know, 2020 was a big year for a lot of people because a lot of it was in the weight room and uh, things like that for a lot of players. And so, you know, getting a little bit of strength and and working on, you know, your agility and your speed and all of your uh, physical attributes was a really important part of, you know, 2020. And so along with that and obviously, you know, the, the hitting and, and all the mechanics of it, uh, it's you know, it's all coming together and and it's been really nice. You were, you know, I think when you were drafted, you were listed about what six three one seventy. What are you at right now physically, and how much has, have you changed since uh, in the last year? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think when I was drafted, I think it says one seventy on there. I'm about you know two hundred two oh five now. If I'm being generous for myself, yeah, just putting on a little, little bit of size, a little bit of weight, and you know, it's it's cool seeing the ball start to go a little bit further. And you've, you've put up, again, amazing numbers in the last month. How much has your dad helped? For people who don't know, your dad, Dave, is a longtime uh, manager uh, at the minor league level and has had a tremendous, tremendous career in, in professional baseball. Yeah, you know, we, we talk on the phone uh, almost every day just about a lot of different things. He's a baseball coach heart, at heart, so obviously a lot of our conversations are about baseball. But at the end of the day, he has a lot of respect for for the Rays organization and, and the coaches and everybody here. So, you know, he likes to keep his distance. He's not, he doesn't do anything like that in terms of coaching, really. He just likes to listen and, and talk baseball. So, I mean, we talk baseball all the time, you know, about how the games went and everything like that. But, you know, he, he does a really good job, you know, being a, a dad first and a, and a coach second. Bo, and we're chatting again with Bo Brundage on this week in Rays baseball. What kind of hitter do you think, see yourself as? Are you a gap to gap guy with some power now? And what do you see as your greatest strengths? You know, I, I think as we go, we're still kind of figuring that out. I think gap-to-gap gap guy sounds sounds pretty good to me. I like the sound of that. But, you know, whatever whatever is needed out of me uh, going forward, what, you know, whatever the organization sees me sees me doing, you know, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do. And speaking of the organization, obviously they've had as a, in the minors the best winning percentage. The Charleston team you've played on has the best winning percentage in the sport. What has the environment been in the clubhouse and how much has that helped? It's been awesome. You know, it's uh, it's a really cool team to be a part of. Just, um, and everybody loves to hang out with each other on and off the field. So it's fun, you know, just sitting in the locker room and just seeing how everybody clicks together. And then, you know, you get on the field and obviously uh, the record speaks for itself. You know, just how well the guys get along. And, you know, even when guys are getting promoted and everything that, like that, you know, somebody new comes in and, and they just fit so perfectly into the system. How good is the talent level? I mean, you've been around baseball your whole life. How good is the talent level at that at that point? I think it's pretty darn good here down here. I mean, just seeing, you know, uh, but yeah, you know, the teammates at the bottom, um, you know, the pitching staff, uh, the position players we have on our team. And then, you know, even when you uh, look at some other teams around the, around the league, you know, everybody's talented, everybody's got good stuff. And so it's definitely competitive competitive area for sure. And, and as you get through the season, Bo, because it's your first, you know, really full season in a while, what are some areas where you want to definitely grow in the off season now that you've got a kind of chance to access and, and get some more experience? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of things to improve upon. Defense is always something that I think is overlooked, especially nowadays. Um, you know, it's a lot about hitting, you know, hitting is the number one thing, but obviously I'd, I'd like to work on, you know, things defensively and, and becoming even more consistent at the plate. Base running for me is also something that I really want to work on and, and get better at. You know, just become as well-rounded as a player and 
teammate as I, as I can be. Well, we appreciate a few minutes for sure. Um, we're glad to see that you're healthy and doing well and continued success uh, the rest of this year. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. And that's race prospect Bo Brundage, a 2018 draft pick. He has a 1072 OPS this year. Coming up, R.J. Harrison on the late Paul Kirsch, Tyler Zombro on his recovery, and Marley Rivera of ESPN on the AO playoff races. This is This Week in Race Baseball on the Race Baseball Network. We continue on This Week in Race Baseball, and unfortunately, the Rays lost a member of their family this week, that being Paul Kirsch, a longtime member of the scouting department, and joining us to chat about him, someone who has known him for many, many years, and that's Ray Senior Advisor R.J. Harrison. R.J., we appreciate you joining us, especially under the tough circumstances this week. Uh, thanks for having me, Neil. Tell me what, when you first started working with Paul and what made him so special and so beloved in this industry? Well, we first came together in the fall of 1995. Dan Jennings, our original scouting director, was along with Bart Braun and some of the other folks that were in the original group of uh, in our scouting department and our baseball operations department uh, had the task of building from scratch a, a scouting an amateur scouting staff and actually at that time amateur scouts you know we scouted pro stuff we did everything and Paul was our original our first Northwest and only Northwest scout and he was hired in the fall of '95 he had a similar background as me he was. He'd been a minor league player. He'd been a minor league coach. He was he'd just coming off managing in the Marlins organization, and he was making the transition to scouting. And uh, so that's that was my first. I'd never met Paul before. I'd seen him when he was a player when I was managing in the Midwest League back in the early 80s. And so our, our relationship started with a phone call for me to welcome him as I was like the Western U.S. supervisor when we first put this all together. So... I started working with Paul in the, in the fall of 1995. What made him such a special person, RJ? Well, he was, first of all, he was just passionate about what he did. He was, you know, and he, he has a strong character, very passionate about his opinions, his evaluations, and he worked hard to have those, those opinions. Early on in his career as a scout, you could tell he was going to be a good one because he didn't ride the roller coaster with performance. Our second draft uh, in 1997, there was a left-handed pitcher at Washington State named Todd Billitz, who we ended up taking in the third round. And he ultimately pitched in the big leagues with Oakland and I think a little bit with Colorado. But Todd had about a seven ERA at Washington State that year. And I actually wanted to, I went up to watch him pitch against uh, Lewis and Clark one night and he got beat up pretty good. But Paul never, ever, he believed in that kid. He did the work on that kid, and uh, he never wavered because he was convicted in what kind of a makeup that, that Todd had and, and that he believed in this stuff, and he just believed if we got him in our system that he was going to be a major league pitcher. He, he was very strong in his opinions. Guys that have sat in meetings with him, you know, there, there's the PK stories are legendary. Uh, he was a little prone to some hyperbole, but, but always – Always uh, well backed up and, and, and well worked, worth the entertainment value as well. So give us uh, one that you can use for air and entertaining Paul Kirsch story. Well, well, there's a few of them. I, um, he was a real neat guy too, Neil. And we had company cars back the first uh, 15, 18 years. Even with his company car, he didn't like anybody to mess it up. So we're, we're running late one day. He picked me up. We're running late to get to uh, someplace across the state. 
and we'd stop to get something to eat. And I just thought we'd just get in the car and ride and, 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 and eat on the way. He made me sit outside the car and eat so that I wouldn't spill any lettuce or tomato or anything or French fries in, in his company car. One of his favorite ones when he's talking about, he'd talk about players and he'd say, best makeup I've ever had in my territory, you know? And we, we would kind of roll our eyes because PK used that one a number of years over the years. And, and uh, really a, a guy that was really respected in the territory. And I say this in a, in, a, in a really good way. Paul was a guy that the other scouts were always worried about because if they heard that he was on a guy or if they had any inkling that Paul Kirsch liked the player, they got nervous because they thought they are either missing something or they hadn't seen the guy right and that sort of thing because he was. He, I mean, he, he left his mark up there. I, uh, like very few guys in that territory have over the years. And it was, it was a very respectful, almost, um, you know, they paid homage to, the, to this guy as a, as, a, as a scout and as a friend, too. I mean, Paul had a real collection of good friends up there in the scouting industry. I was sitting last Sunday, actually, before we got the word that Paul had passed. I was down in Sarasota watching Team USA in Canada, and uh, Casey Harvey, who's the West Coast supervisor for the Rangers, was telling a story about his first year as an area scout working for the Angels. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, he said Paul and, and uh, one of Paul's good buddies, a guy by the name of Jack Ewey, who worked for, I believe, whew, I'm not sure, the Kansas City or Cleveland at the time, I think. And Casey said, yeah, boy, he said, these guys, these veteran guys, they took me under their wing and, you know, they were helping me out. He said, and I realized about three quarters of the way through the spring, you know, I'm not getting any information from those guys, but they're fleecing me for all kinds of information. You know, <laughs> that was the way that a lot of, you know, veteran scouts would, and, and they did, they helped out these young guys and stuff, but uh, they taught them some lessons along the way too. And, and, uh, maybe save themselves a few wild goose chases by tapping into the young guys that were running all over the place. How do you think he'll be remembered in this organization and how will his impact be seen, RJ? I think he'll be remembered by those that worked with him. The, the stories will just live on and very similar to Bart Braun, who was a longtime uh, scout with us and an evaluator with us. There's not a draft meetings or a, or a gathering that gets together that some quote or some thing that PK or, or a guy like Bart had done or said or, or, or that people will bring it to life and, and we'll hold their, you know, Paul's memory for as long as we all work together. And, you know, last year, we um, our Scout of the Year Award was officially renamed the Paul Kirsch Scout of the Year Award. So, so that honor will, uh, and, and, and his name will live on uh, with that award as well. Well, obviously, we're sorry for his loss. He had a, a valiant fight, as we understand, with ALS. I'm glad you could reminisce about him a little bit, and we appreciate some time on This Week in Race Baseball. Well, thanks for having me, Neil. And, and I'm, I, I'm happy that we could uh, share in Paul's memory, and, and we're all so sad. But the opportunity I've worked with him over the last 26 years was truly an honor. And that's Ray's senior advisor, R.J. Harrison. Paul Kirsch was 65 after passing this week from ALS. Joining us now, a special guest in Tyler Zombro. Tyler, I know so many Rays fans have been thinking about you since you were hit by a line drive while pitching for Durham. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thankfully, I am close to being back to normal 100%. All cognitive function is there and well. 
obviously have to be protective in terms of the fracture, but overall, I couldn't be happier with where I'm at. How difficult a process was it? And what do you still have in front of you? I would say early on, a lot of those dominoes that kind of fell put me in a good position in terms of the cognitive function. So thankfully with the Duke hospital staff, with the nature of the injury, my speech cortex and motor function was affected. Right side of the brain, so motor function on the left side of my body was affected. But occupational therapy, speech therapy, and the physical therapy stuff that I started even a week and a half after getting out of the hospital while it was so gradual made such a lasting effect. And thankfully, as the swelling went down in the brain, things really started to come around to normal. So in combination with, you know, just the general recovery timeline and those therapy treatments, things progressed quickly in terms of what I have in front of me. It's just a, a little bit of a long process to wait to see how this fracture settles with having so much titanium in my head. But from there, it's it's starting to just get back into more, I guess, rigorous physical activities at this point. How much titanium is in there? And do you need another procedure at some point? So I have uh, 16 plates and 32 screws. I do not need another procedure as far as I know. I will be getting another scan sometime around December. Uh, our original timeline was six months post-surgery for that. And basically that's kind of the, the timeline and day where I'll find out, okay, the, the fracture is healing well. If it's not healing well, obviously I have to reassess, but that's that's where I'll see a lot of the progress in terms of how things have kind of formed back together and where I stand. How much has your wife Mariah helped in this being that she is in the medical field? And how difficult has it been for her? You know, early on, it it, it was hard, especially like I, I've mentioned the speech thing, just her knowing what I do off the field and worrying about my cognitive function being back to normal. I know she was terrified of, of a lasting effect with that. As I continued to progress and she was at my therapy sessions with me and, you know, I, I feel like I've rolled through so many cognitive exams now and she was right there, you know, in all of them. And when she saw me returning to normal, she certainly had a better state of mind about things. But in terms of embracing the caregiver, I mean, she was she was incredible. I never wish that upon anybody, especially, you know, to see your husband at 26 years old, you know, the first couple of weeks where I, I can't really walk around. She's helping me walk to the bathroom. You know, I couldn't stand a shower. She's helping me with that. Just so many things that, you know, I never wanted her to have to do, but she's a phenomenal caregiver. And I'm certainly glad that I'm well enough that I'm not putting that burden on her anymore. Physically, what are you doing now, Tyler? And what's a, are you staying in Durham as you recover? I am staying in Durham. I'm actually through all of my prescribed therapy sessions at Duke Hospital. My physical activity is just starting to do a little more aggressive cardio. I can do light weightlifting and I'm actually uh, starting to throw. I had been throwing plyos for a couple weeks and I actually played catch with a uh, BK yes or two days ago. So starting to to feel semi back to normal, which which I love. The only thing I, I really can't do is increase my intracranial pressure a ton. Other than that, I'm I'm fairly free to progress as to comfort. Before all this happened, you've been working for Tread Athletics in Charlotte. Are you still doing that now? Yeah, I've been able to do it. Thankfully it's it's provided a lot of sanity for me and 
a, a sense of a normalized routine for both Mariah and I. I started getting back into tread related work probably about a month ago at this point, just slowly taking on some of the athletes that I previously had working on internal procedures with tread. There's a lot of work that I'm able to do that's not obviously physically strenuous. It's just having conversations. And honestly, I think that helped a lot in terms of my speech therapy is getting on the phone with guys and getting comfortable speaking and longer durations again. What have your teammates meant to you in all of this? And, and how have they inspired you? Because I know you've inspired them. I mean, they're, they're incredible. The overall care that they have, it's just a, it's a special group. It's special people. One of the things that I told Vince Lodato right away is, you know, I knew how concerned they were. And, you know, the fact that guys wanted to come see me when, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't done anything in two weeks and I look awful at this point. I still have staples in my head from surgery. Obviously haven't showered much, but you know, just to come sit with me and hang out even when I'm not speaking much, you know, that that means a lot. And on my end, I I know how concerned they were. I could sense it in text messages, obviously hearing from Vince. One of the things that I've I've enjoyed is trying to get back around the field to establish that sense of normalcy because I I want to let them know that I'm okay and I'm progressing accordingly. So hopefully that can help them mentally as well because I know that their recovery is just as important as mine. Have you sat and watched games since with them? I have. I'm actually going to all home games now. I'm tucked away in the corner of the dugout with Brady. It's been a blast getting back over to the field and seeing games, just just being around the game. Like there's there's so many things when when you're away from the game for a while that you miss and it's just clubhouse interactions and pregame stuff. Like it the actual act of pitching for me is just one percent of what it means to be around these guys and a part of a team and being back and, and having that aspect of my life in order certainly feels really good you've got tread athletics no matter what does it mean much for you to be able to play again next year or what's your thought i've had interesting conversations about that because there's i found that there's two two sides of that argument. You know, I I have a lot of quote unquote professional work in front of me in the game of baseball long term. I view that as being, you know, it's it's a backbone support that I have and it encourages me to play for as long as I possibly can. The the counter argument there is well, you could move on from your playing career and be fine. And while that's the case, I I'm not gonna leave that incident as being my last time on the field and as long as the doctors say I'm good to go, I am very eager to get back out there. You know, I, I've seen Alex Cobb come back. I saw Jay Happ get hit. And every time one of these occur, there's always talk about pitchers wearing some sort of protective gear. What's your thought on that? I, I've thought a ton about it. One of the people who's been very helpful in this uh, is Rob Vito, who owns Unequal, which produces headgear for multiple sports. I know in soccer, the concussion-related stuff is huge. Danny Farquhar connected me with him. He has custom inserts that he's going to build out for me, where it's carbon fiber on the outside with padding on the inside. Now, that'll be a full insert inside of my hat, so kind of like an old-school Scully type of model. As far as other people wearing it, I think that being able to have something on your throwing side to protect that frontal lobe 
that's kind of vulnerable. So, you know, certain components of your skull are going to be thinner and more vulnerable. But if you have it on your dominant throwing side, generally that's the side that's going to be exposed to the hitter. And I think having some form of a carbon fiber insert of any sort is likely beneficial long-term. Well, Tyler, your insight is greatly appreciated. I think first and foremost, uh, myself and our audience are just happy that you're doing well. We wish you continued success on the road to recovery, and we're glad you could share a few minutes with us on This Week in Race Baseball. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that is Tyler Zombro, and we certainly hope his recovery continues to go in this current path. Time now to take a look at the national scene, and joining us from ESPN is one Marley Rivero. Marley, thanks very much for a few minutes today. No, of course. Thank you so much for having me, and what a run for the race, Neil. It's just impressive uh, to watch from far away. It's been impressive to watch from up close, too. And at this point, as we come down the home stretch, I mean, I'm somewhat surprised. I'm not quite sure if you are as well that really the American League division races have been decided to this point. It's a wild card race now. I think that I was not surprised with the Central and the West. I'm a little bit more surprised with the East. And I'm going to be very um very careful with my comments because in the offseason, and most of your listeners know that I cover the Yankees, in the offseason, the best thing that could have happened to the New York Yankees were the trades that the Tampa Bay Rays did, right? Like, you know, getting, you know, not having, you know, a pitcher of that level, you know, and trading him away to the Padres. And at that point, I think everyone thought, oh, this division is for the Yankees. And we know what happened to the Yankees at the beginning of the season. Then they go on this really great winning streak and now we know what's you know what's what's happening right now that they're basically just fighting for the wild card so i think that that's the surprise for me the fact that tampa bay continues to do what they do it shouldn't be a surprise by now right <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like this is i feel like since 2008 we're saying the same thing the surprise is that tampa bay continues to be able to succeed in the way they do without the press without the the marquee attention and now are the yankees in trouble in terms of the wild card, oh. huh? Because you've got a handful <laughs> of teams that are all fighting for it. Absolutely. And you know why? They're... The main thing, Neil, last, uh, about two weeks ago, we had to put in our predictions. You know how it always happens, you know, at ESPN, we have to put in the predictions for the postseason. And I actually wrote the New York Yankees have a chance to win the division, right? <laughs> and it was only because at that point, the New York Yankees were like in a 10-game winning streak. And not only that, I looked at the schedule. And outside the Tampa Bay Rays, very, very few teams, maybe Oakland and and Tampa Bay, were the only teams who could really challenge the Yankees, who could really play well against them. The rest of the schedule was super weak. At that point, you know, the Blue Jays were playing really poorly and the Yankees had seven or eight games against the Blue Jays left. As we know, we know what Baltimore has done this season and what Tampa Bay has done to them. And the Yankees had seven games left against Baltimore. So I felt, and not only that, next week they play Cleveland and Texas. So then at that point, I really, and with all due respect, right, to all these major league teams, we know, you know, what could happen against those teams. So I honestly thought that the Yankees were really going to make a run for it. At this point, absolutely, they're in trouble. The only thing, Neil, is that when you look at the wild card and the teams that can truly challenge the Yankees in the wild card, it's not that many. I actually don't believe in Seattle as a legitimate contender. I do think that Oakland is, and I think that the Blue Jays are. So I do believe that that wild card is going to come out of the A's, right? Like either the A's, the Yankees, the Red Sox, and of course the Blue Jays. I don't think that too many more teams have a chance in there. You know Charlie Montoyo as well as I do. How dangerous is Toronto if they are to get into the postseason? I think they are the single team that no one wants to play in one game. And I think that's also 
favors well for Atlanta. They're those teams that are so gritty and they're just really, and they are fearless and they're so young. And, and obviously we know that the Tampa Bay Rays also are very young and the Yankees actually have gotten a lot younger. But I think that that's the point. The fact that they have nothing to lose, that they're always so excited to play. Like when I see the, the Toronto Blue Jays on the field, it reminds me of winter ball. Like it's really, it's just this joy that they have in the game. And that's very dangerous, particularly, you know, for quote unquote teams that are, you know, that are supposed to win like the New York Yankees. I, I think that the Yankees, if they have a list of the team, they would likely, you know, how do you say this? You know, the one that they least like to see the Toronto Blue Jays are really at the top of that list. How do you handicap this, Marley, at this point? I mean, mm-hmm. the Red Sox are struggling right now, and obviously yeah. they've had to deal with COVID. The Yankees have, have been skidding a little bit lately, yes. and obviously the Blue Jays are surging. I think that it's going to come down to the bullpens. God, I've said, I think, 17 times. <laughs> so, um, but uh, as a writer, I'm actually offended with myself. But um, it is going to come down to the bullpens. And we know if the Yankees get it together, that's precisely how, you know, how it will go. We know what happens with the pitching with the Toronto Blue Jays. And it has been so iffy. At this point, the Toronto Blue Jays are kind of doing what the Red Sox did at the beginning of the season, right? Like killing you with offense. And that's really where the Yankees are in trouble because their pitching, their starting pitching has been great. The relievers have been the trouble. Of, of course, now knowing that Zach Britton is going to undergo Tommy John surgery and they're not going to have him. You know, we know they lost Darren day already who is going to take over that seven eight and maybe nine because we know that our oldest Chapman is also struggling pretty badly at this point so I think it's going to come down to those relievers it's going to it that's the only way I believe that we can handicap this and Jonathan Loisega is down right now too and I think he's as important as anyone in that pen Absolutely. And he was, you know, quote unquote, the salvation uh, for the Yankees for a while. A very, very important part of that 13 game winning streak. You know, he was actually a consideration when we voted for the reliever of the month. He got quite a few votes. And yes, Jonathan Loisiga. And not only that, when you hear right arm issues, that's always a problem. We actually just know that even though the Yankees starting pitching, it isn't only the relievers, even though this Yankee starting pitching has been really good. Jamison Tyon now going to the IL and Garrett Cole with a mild, you know, which is what they're calling upper leg strain. So it really is going to come down to health and relievers. And we know with the two extra players, it's going to be a little bit easier. We're going to see a lot of relievers in that slot. But I mean, Neil, it's about pitching. And I know we get bored saying this, but it's going to be about that. Well, it should be interesting to watch who's pitching holds up the next few weeks. Marley Rivera <laughs> of ESPN, thanks very much for a few minutes. Should be an entertaining few weeks left. Absolutely. And I can't wait to see the Tampa Bay Rays in October in New York. And I mean that <laughs> the only way they'll come to October in New York is going to be for the end of the season. <laughs> and that is Marley Rivera of ESPN, who obviously does not think the Rays have, or rather the Yankees have a great chance to be in this year's postseason. They are tied right now with Toronto for the fifth and final playoff spot a game behind Boston for the top wild card. Now we want to thank Marley and all of the guests in the program today, Rays relief pitcher David Robertson, the now president of baseball operations, Eric Neander, for talking about his new title change and extension, Bo Brundage from the Rays farm system for being with us, special senior advisor R.J. Harrison for discussing the life of one Paul Kirsch and also Tyler Zombro for discussing his remarkable recovery from that line drive he took while pitching with the Durham Bulls. If you ever have something you want to hear on the program, all you have to do is tweet me, and you can do so at Neil Solons. Next week, a reminder, for the first time this year, we move 
to Saturdays for the rest of the season. That's 90 minutes or so before first pitch. Next week, you'll also hear from Adam Conley and much more. Special thanks to my producer, Rob Roman, and on-site Steve Ersnick. I'm Neil Solon. Stay tuned. The pregame show is next on the Rays Baseball Network. Thank you for listening to This Week in Rays Baseball. Breaking ball lifted to the air, way up there, into right field and deep. Judge is going back towards the corner at the wall. Gone! And the Rays jump in front four to one. If you missed any of the show, catch it on archive at RaysBaseball.com slash radio. With first and second, the one-two pitch. Swing and a miss! He struck him out! Keep it right here. The Rays pregame show is next.